Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. In the realm of live events, particularly in the field of medicine and healthcare, there's a prevailing culture where experts stand before learners and impart their knowledge and expertise on a specific subject or skill. I think we've all been there. This traditional approach involves the presenter or faculty in our continuing medical education and continuing professional development world, simply telling learners what they need to know or how to do something. But it's not easy to shift from a monologue style presentation to a more interactive and engaging format. The shift requires faculty to reconsider their approach and figure out if it's a battle worth fighting. And faculty also need to work pretty hard to establish trust with their audience, especially in virtual events where there might not be an established relationship. In today's episode, I'm talking with Chris Elmet, a facilitator and CEO of the virtual event platform Live. We're talking about best practices for engaging audiences in virtual events, overcoming Zoom fatigue, and rethinking content delivery for online learning. Some of the takeaways from today's episode include how to design virtual events for shorter attention spans with content in small chunks rather than long monologues, how to intentionally build discussion activities into live online events, and the value of letting the audience choose topics on the fly that they want covered rather than sticking to a pre-planned agenda. And before we jump into this conversation, I want to shout out to Sapna Pandey and Karen Straub-West, who recently highlighted Right Medicine in the Alliance Almanac as an influencer worth following in CME and CPD. Here's what they like about the podcast. They say, guests on the show are the worker bees of CME CPD. These are the people who are rolling up their sleeves and doing the work. Guests on the show include CME CPD experts who bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to the discussion. And discussions are practice-based, 
with real-world examples, and content is applicable wherever you are in the content creation process. Thank you, Sapna and Karen. And if you, dear listener, have ideas for guests or topics on Right Medicine, you can let me know via email, direct message on LinkedIn, or by sharing a review via the link in the show notes. And now, on with today's show. Welcome, Chris. It's really good to see you on the Right Medicine podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Alex. We kind of connected through Eugene Posniak, who sang your praises. He was a guest on, on the podcast uh, in the spring of 2023, and, and he, was, uh, he was waxing lyrical and singing your, your praises. But please tell listeners who you are and something about what you currently do. Sure, absolutely, Alex. And thanks, Eugene. The check's in the mail. Uh, my name is Chris Elmett. <laughs> I'm the CEO of a company called Live now, but my background, which I'll talk to you a little bit more about later, but my, my background is as a teacher. So straight out of uni, I went uh, and taught in a number of different settings. So I worked in a sixth form college. I worked in, uh, which is for 16 to 18-year-olds. I worked with 11 to 16-year-olds and uh, a number of other settings. But in the early 20s, in my early 20s, I wanted to see whether I could take what I'd learned from the teaching world and apply them in the business world. Uh, after a few people telling me there's not much call for teachers uh, in business, actually, uh, a few people told me that actually a great place to start was in facilitation. And for me, the overlaps between facilitation and teaching are very, very close. And if I can put my finger on the difference between my life as a teacher and my life as a facilitator was, as a teacher in theory, I was helping people to arrive at an answer that was known, whereas in facilitation, I'm helping people to find their own way to an answer that isn't previously known. That's how I define facilitation. But outside of that, the techniques that work well in teaching also work very effectively within facilitation. So I've been, I've been facilitating for um, a, a coming up to three decades now. A bit scary when I think a bit about it like that, but... I've been facilitating now for three decades, and I've always been focused on how do we get large groups to collaborate effectively. For me, I've seen lots of evidence of small groups collaborating very effectively in things we always know as workshops, so with groups of five or 10 or 15 people. But what about if you need to mobilize 100 people or 1,000 people in a certain direction? What does collaboration look like in that context? And that's where I spent a lot of my career facilitating um, very large-scale interventions in all sorts of spheres. Most recently, of course, with lockdown, the opportunity to get 500 people in a room uh, became rather more difficult. And so um, over the last two or three years, I've been really interested to see you know, how the stuff we got used to doing face-to-face, -face, how that tr transposes to online. And I suppose the, 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 the passion is around you know, understanding what you can transpose, but also being very, very mindful of what you can't transpose. And my work at Live, which is a, a virtual event platform, is very much exploring uh, that subject. Well, I think you've kind of introduced a lot of questions that uh, we want to dig into in our, in our conversation today. But I just want to do a little bit of translation for non-UK-based listeners. <laughs> Uni, 
means uh, university or college. Correct. <laughs> it's one of those things that uh, sometimes doesn't necessarily always make it across the the Atlantic. So this is probably kind of back to front, but you, you know, you asked that question about collaboration, and I think that mm. one of the things that happened certainly within the continuing medical education, continuing education for health professionals world, at least in the US, is that you know some of those live meetings that medical societies and healthcare associations would typically run every year, the American College of Cardiology, uh, mm. the American Society for Clinical Oncology, and so on. You know, these are huge meetings with hundreds of people uh, where there would be that live element of you know, opportunities for accredited education at those meetings, but then they had to take all of that and and put it online. So those are very uh, real instances where, you know, there potentially were hundreds of people uh, in a mm. live online event. How, how have you found yourself kind of approaching that question of collaboration in live online events? Because yeah, most of us in this field anyway have gotten really used to Zoom and also are very well aware of the limitations of that platform, mm. particularly in the professional development and accredited education space. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, from my work with Eugene in the past, Alex, I think uh, yours is a is a world where people naturally are pretty good at how they design meetings and, uh, and and how they think about the experience of the participants, engaging them, helping to, them towards their learning outcomes, and so on. So the challenges that you face, faced with Zoom was very much the challenges with Zoom, not because there's any deficiency in your uh, in your area of expertise. I think the biggest thing that people get wrong is being over ambitious or oblivious to the limitations of these platforms and. So, so there's a number of things within that that we just need to be very, very conscious of. So, you know, the first thing is that the, the engagement of a participant when they're at home or, you know, they're home from a long day, you know, having, having been working as a clinician, their level of engagement is just less. You know, I'm looking at you now and you're about 98 pixels across. I guarantee that if I saw you in three dimensions in real life, I would have more of an impact of meeting you simply because I, I see you as bigger, you know, and I, of course I'm engaging with you face to face. So we have to be aware of the limitations and we have to design to them. So first of all, it's more boring being in a virtual meeting than in a face to face meeting. Secondly, the participants don't have the commitment of being in a room and they don't have that embarrassment of walking out. Uh, you know, and what that says about them if they walk out in the middle of a meeting, whereas, of course, they can walk off and make themselves a cup of coffee uh, in the middle of a Zoom meeting. And by by muting their camera, you know, then uh, then no one really knows. So we have to be very mindful of the fact that these platforms have their limitations and we can't exceed it. So the first thing is we have to design our content in much shorter periods. So the first thing I say is, if you can possibly do it in half an hour or less, definitely try and do that. Mm. The second thing is that we have to think about how we deliver our content in a way that is more engaging. So things like, I have a rule that we never go more than nine minutes on a monologue. Looking at the data of people connecting to a platform and when they tend to disengage, and there's always 
there's always um, exceptions to this rule. But in, if you go over nine minutes of a monologue, then people tend to leave or they, they tend to um, go and do something else on their computer. So keep it short, keep it to nine minutes of monologue. And, and if you need more than nine minutes from one of your presenters or content leaders or whatever, then think about how they can deliver that content in not just a monologue with slides, but with other ways of doing it as well. I think the third thing for me is to recognize that a lot of people are already quite shy doing the one-to-one networking in a physical meeting. For a lot of people, that's actually not that comfortable. It's just, it's expected. So, you know, people push themselves to do it. But for a lot of people, it's quite uncomfortable. Uh, In an online meeting, they will just completely disengage with that. So Mm. I would go as far as to say there is no point having a belief that you're going to achieve a networking effect in a virtual event because I don't think you you honestly can, whatever the vendors tell you. So it, it sounds all quite pessimistic, but actually if you're very realistic about the limitations of the platforms and you design to those limitations, then you're going to get closer to your outcomes that you're aiming for and closer to that sense of collaboration. But as I mentioned to you just before the show, I've spent eight hours in you know facilitating a face-to-face crisis meeting uh, with an organization that's facing some big problems. And I guarantee that there was no way of doing that online. Unfortunately, everyone had to get in the car. They had to get to the same place. And we just had to work it out because there was no way online that we could have sorted out the challenges that they had. What is it about being face-to-face that you see as particularly advantageous for doing the kind of facilitation work that that you do. I mean, one of the things that strikes me as you're kind of talking about these things is you're you are talking a lot about the social and emotional aspects of connection, uh, you know, embodied presence, being in the same physical space as people. What is it about those things that is particularly important for facilitators and by extension for the kind of process of collaboration, which I think is probably mm. What I'm hearing is the flip side of facilitation if you're if you're in a group and having to kind of work towards some kind of outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's lots, but but the big one for me is 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 body language and signals. Hmm. Very often when I'm facilitating a session, the things that people first say is is not actually the end point that we end up with. So someone says, I think it's all about X. You know, and actually you find out it's not so much about X, but that's what everyone says first. And in a virtual meeting, you don't get that. You just, you don't appreciate how things are landing with participants. They tend to have much more of a poker face. They're much less aware of being in a meeting and they don't realize that if they just sit there stony faced and they never nod, you know, and they never react physically, then they're not encouraging other people to, you know, say more and go further. But also, there's this kind of this sense when you're in a conversation where you know someone said something and it doesn't quite sit right with someone in the room and you can just reach to them and say bob i i couldn't help noticing <laughs> that when sandra said that I, I feel like you want to tell us something in in response to that and it's just really hard to do that when you've got 13 inches of a laptop screen and 98 pixels of each person to be able to pick up on those signals and people are sending you less signals anyway because they've got their zoom face on you know no expression never nodding you know that sort of thing is is it, it really takes away from from the sense of being in a moment together where you're where you're present and you're you're trying to resolve something 
Zoom face. Let's talk about that. Is that something that you saw really kind of uh, increasing as we moved deeper and deeper into uh, pandemic mode? Or was it something that you associated with being in a virtual space uh, pre-pandemic? Yeah, it's definitely people got more and more sick of it. So it got more and more of a problem. Uh, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, and I'm I'm sure that it's been discussed at length, and you know we we are in a different world now. But you know, in the beginning of a pan of the pandemic, it was so amazing that you know the CEO could reach us in our living room from their living room that it was kind of okay that we couldn't hear them very well, and the trains were going by, and the light was shining in, but you know behind them from the window, and you know we were all just quite enthusiastic about the fact that there was any way of communicating at all, given that we could no longer be in offices together or in conferences together or whatever else. And I think we kind of, we did get sick of that after a while because it wasn't quite so quaint and cute anymore. It was just, Mm. it was just quite unengaging. I think in a lot of situations, a lot of people have realized that if they want to be effective at communicating in a virtual setting, then they need to rethink the way they do their communication just as they realized that they went from uh you know running a little stand up meeting with uh, 10 colleagues you know in a corner of their hospital when they went from that to presenting a paper you know at a big conference they had to adapt their style uh mm-hmm. of delivery because you know they were working on a different stage but unfortunately what i found is the same people who take feedback when you tell them or advise them on how to improve their presentation style, you know, think in advance about how they're going to deliver their message, be conscious of the experience of their listeners and watchers, that they don't have infinite patience and infinite attention. You know, those very same people did all that adaptation great. And the ones who are never interested in whether they're good at presenting, they just believe they're, they're good at presenting because they're very knowledgeable are exactly the same people who are doing it just as badly in 2023 as they were doing it in 2020. And it's always been the case. Let me go back to, I'd like to go back to the point you raised earlier about, you know, not including, so in the, in the virtual space and the, in the live online space, not including more than nine minutes of, of monologue and and possibly even less. And of course this ties in very much with, you know, what we hear from neuroscience and from instructional design around micro learning and smaller chunks and, you know, and this kind of thing in the, in the CME world, in the CE world, you know, very often what we get in a live online setting is, you know, faculty presenting for Mm -hmm. much more than nine minutes. (laughs) Because, because that is what they do in the live space. And, certainly in medicine and healthcare, there's still very much a culture of, you know, standing as the expert in front of learners, telling them what you know and how to do something, whatever that something is. How do you begin to unpick or unpack that situation to get presenters to where they need to be in terms of thinking about shorter, more spaced out episodes of of yeah. monologue and interspersed with other activities and what would those other activities look like yeah yeah okay great question and and if it was easy you know then we'd have done it years ago it, it isn't but right. so the, 
the first so so the, the first thing is you've got to work out whether it's a battle you can win or not okay so so i do virtual events where people speak for much longer i don't have the relationship they don't trust me enough to take my advice and therefore i am i'm just shouting in the wind and i and i'm not going to win that battle uh, and there will be situations i'm sure where many of your listeners will say dr so and so is not going to take my advice on how we design this session so you've got to pick the battles that you know you're going to win mm. and really focus your energy on those because the truth is that if you ask someone to change the style that they deliver their content and it's your request rather than their suggestion then unfortunately you are going to need to put in the effort to work out what that new style is and that takes time and it takes rapport you know and it and, and it just takes imagination and so on but the way that i think about it is i don't like thinking about the idea of presenters and i don't like thinking about blocks of powerpoint particularly because that that is part of the problem what i prefer mm. to do is to think about all of the people who we're going to hear from as actors i don't mean that in a thespian way but as actors yeah and we're going to hear from them in a number of different ways so can we hear a personal story from a clinician which lands one of those micro learning points you know about a particular way of doing things can we hear it in the context of a personal story where someone talks to a camera and they are encouraged to look into the camera and they just do that bit not as part of a great long presentation but as a let's do that bit okay so we can hear from the same person for in elapsed time for much longer than 9 minutes but can we design it in chunks where we hear from them a personal story for one bit the big concept another bit a worked example another bit and in between we have other activities I always say that in a meeting you should try and have three voices and one of them can be the audience but you should definitely have two different voices in the meeting so definitely not have one person setting up introducing you know running through the whole presentation and then thanking people for coming at least split those two out but then your audience is they are a third voice and they are a way of breaking up those monologues so you know asking uh, audiences just in the chat to reflect on you know when you hear that big concept in what way does it chime with the stuff that you do uh, in your own practice it just takes a moment it allows the person who's presenting to to reload to you know just to sit and watch and read because that's what everyone else is doing to read the chat and then they can come back and comment on that or they can be helped to comment on that by by the person facilitating and there we've already broken up the that what would be a, a wall to wall presentation i think the other thing is yeah and and this is particularly difficult in your field but powerpoints are really terrible format for virtual mm. events if i'm sitting in the audience of a physical meeting i've got a great big screen in front of me with the slides and then i've got a great big human being next to them and when i've decided that i've seen enough of the slide and i know what's on there i'm going to turn my gaze back to the speaker and i'm not going to look at that slide anymore now there are platforms that allow you to do this but in principle once you put a slide up in a zoom it's 90% of the screen and that is all you're allowing people to see they can really no longer see the speaker i know there's a postage stamp where they're now 30 pixels wide in the top corner but i'm not really seeing that person i i'm not getting any of their energy or or any of their conviction mm. or their you know their delivery i'm just getting a voice and then i'm getting a slide so 
let's try and get away from that as well and encourage them to think about how to land messages, not with a slide, but with their own delivery and their own, you know, spoken word. Are there other ways? Yeah, no, I love that example. Actually, I've been to I've been to a few gigs this year. Uh, well, certainly since the spring, and you know, I hadn't been to any before since before March twenty twenty, and was really struck by you know this parallel existence of you have the live you, you know musician on stage, and there's a huge screen, and it's a little bit different because mm-hmm. it's not PowerPoint. But yeah. I really enjoyed that that switching, you know, I was able to kind yeah. of zoom in on, on the screen and get a different kind of experience, even though I was in the crowd and also able to kind of see the, the, the musician. I, I wonder if there's, you know, what the neuroscience is uh, around, <laughs> around that. And that's a rhetorical question. I'm not expecting you to yeah, answer yeah, that, yeah. but it, it, it's, it feels like it's kind of similar thing. You have those, well, I guess instructional designers would call that dual encoding. You know, you 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 mm-hmm. you have two different things going on. You can you can watch and listen, and also triple encoding. I don't know if that's a thing. Feel <laughs> feel the experience. Like you feel you yeah. mentioned energy. You feel the energy in the in the room. You know, and you you foreshadowed that my question by saying getting around PowerPoint by presence and presentation and spoken word. Mm. These are learned skills. Often people who present don't necessarily have these skills. Are there some other things that people who are responsible for putting together virtual online learning can do to ensure that the message is communicated without PowerPoint? Yes, there are. But again, I'm I'm respectful of the fact that a lot of clinicians are very wedded to their PowerPoint, really, really wedded to their PowerPoint. I think the whole field is, you know, it's 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 yeah. a kind of nodal point that pulls everybody together, you know, writers and designers and yeah, the program managers that are putting content together. Mm, absolutely. And and of course, you know, a lot of what people learn is based around data that is, you know, based on studies or whatever else yeah. and and it kind yeah. of feels wrong to to not have that data visible. But you know the fact is, it wasn't visible. It, it wasn't terribly visible when it was on that big screen in the main room, and now it's coming 100%. through, you know, all pixelated, and it just isn't. It's just not visible. So it, it is crazy it, that we expect people to take things in when we just we know they're not even there. I mean, they literally are not even there. They might be at their computer, but they are doing something else, and they're doing something mm. else because we can't hold them. So, so I, I, that's the bit that kind of gets me gets me going, and I think we, you know, we really need to be we need to be direct. But dialogue is a very good way of being able to convey information, and so, you know, getting two peers to be able to talk about their, you know, their related experience to present through conversation can, can be very effective. And I, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Well, I'll give you one example of that, and then I'll give you an example of something else that we can do to. To, to reduce the PowerPoint count. So on the, on the radio in, in the UK, there's a, there's a program called Chain Reaction. And Chain Reaction is they take experts in a field and they give each of them the opportunity to interview somebody else who's an expert in the field. And it's a series of five episodes. And guess what? The fifth person is interviewed was the first person to interview uh, in the first one. So the idea is it's Love a it. Chain Reaction all the way around. It's a, it's a lovely way of people being able to take on those two roles of both being the interviewer 
and the interviewee. And it actually allows them to bring something different to the meeting, two different dimensions to the meeting. And actually, very often, knowledgeable people are fabulous interviewers because they just know so much about the topic, they know where to probe. So there's an example of something which would get spoiled by a PowerPoint slide. It does take quite a lot of time, as I say. You've got to pick your battles where you know it's going it's to land. And that does take quite a lot of time because you've got to work out who the people in the chain reaction are. But again, the, the other thing is that, you know, with virtual, I've talked so much about the downsides, you'd have thought I'd have chosen something else to work in. But, you know, the <laughs> great thing about virtual is it's very easy to attend. If, for the time that you're there and you can manage to pay attention, it's incredibly convenient to attend. And actually, it's really quite easy to catch up on after the live show as well. So why do we stick with this idea that everything has to be done in one sitting and consumed mm -hmm. in one sitting when we know that people can't concentrate for that long? There's no travel anymore. We don't, it's not because we have to fly them to Barcelona to teach them stuff before they fly home again. They can do it from anywhere and they can do it from any time. So let's design our content in a way that plays to that fabulous strength rather than taking the format of, well, because we've, we've flown them all in, then we need to do it all in one hit. You know, that, that can give you something. The other one, and, and this is one where people have really deep expertise is to, uh, and I'll tell you why, why they need the deep expertise, is rather than them guessing what everyone needs to know, what they do is they put an elevator pitch together for the things they could talk about. So it's not just, I'm so-and-so, ask me anything, because, well, I don't know who you are. I know what your name is, and I know what your title says, but I don't really know who you are, so I don't really know, you know the topics that you can talk to me about. But if I spent a little bit of time outlining some of the topics I can talk about, let the audience choose where we start and let them keep choosing until we run out of time. So that rather than me thinking that it might be interesting to cover the backstory for 10 minutes, if people don't care about the backstory and they just want the applied example, then I'll start with that and we'll, we'll, we'll do it in that way. The reason why I say someone needs a lot of expertise is that trying to get people to develop content, some of which they know is not going to be used is a really difficult sell. So it has to be someone who mm. could literally talk about five different topics like that with no, with no preparation. And then it works really nicely. And, and funny enough, I came at that when I, I did an event for Microsoft. It was a face-to-face -face event. And the CFO, I kid you not, for the UK business had 180 slides and 15 minutes in which to present 180 slides. Now, he worked for Microsoft. So arguably, he was helping their share price just by making so many slides but but you know we, we we sort of sat down and said literally you cannot click through these fast enough for everyone to see them and so we got him to commit to this change and he did do slides 7 to 11 then 124 to 128 then he came back to 62 to 65 because that's what the audience wanted him to do I love that. There's there's a lot in there. I, I do have to first uh, kind of comment on, you know, ask any medical writer who specializes in uh, CME and CE, and they will tell you they have worked on more than one program where faculty have shown up with, you know, 180 slides for perhaps not a 15 minute slot, but certainly a 30 minute slot, but even yeah. a 60 minute slot is too much. And I love that idea of, you know, audience you know, generating what it is that they need to know. You know, in CME and CE, it's a very needs assessment driven mm -hmm. kind of process where you know there needs to be due diligence before 
education programs are put together because they really need to address yeah. you know, learning needs, education needs, and clinical practice gaps and that kind of thing. But what you're describing is is you could almost see that as a kind of real world or live in the moment type of, of needs assessment that speaks to what people feel they need to know. Yes. And it could be the last session in three, where the first two, you had the pre-programmed content, but we've hit minute 40. Right. And, you yeah. know, we're not going to give them another 20 slides because they won't be able to digest that. So recognizing that they're either going to leave, zone out, you know, but, but whatever they're doing, they're not going to be achieving any further learning. Why not have that as a third, you know, a third session, because that will re-engage them and, and give them different outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm conscious of our of our time. We are at that at that 30 minute uh, block. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your platform and and how you use that to do things differently? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, very, very happy to talk about live. So live was born out of my experience during lockdown of transposing face-to-face meetings online. It's something that the events industry you know, manage really well for their clients. They managed to take uh, what was a, an in-person program and move it online. And my company at the time was, was delivering those meetings. So it was anything where there was an ambition to do something a little bit more produced than uh, Zoom or Teams. So something that might be branded, where the quality of the image that people are seeing might be a higher quality it might be done in a studio, so we've got some nice cameras uh, shining onto our speakers with lighting and so on. So where we were trying to bridge that gap between, let's say, Zoom at one end and television at the other. And so mm. we were trying to bridge that gap. And my experience of doing that was it was very expensive and unbelievably complicated because we were using lots of different systems, many of them you sort of borrowed from broadcast television and then Mm. sort of repurposing that for the world that we are in. And one of the big challenges we faced was that very often, even if we had a studio, some of our speakers weren't there. And the experience for speakers uh, in virtual meetings is is really very difficult if they're doing it not from a studio. It's a lot of technology to get your mind around. When you're presenting slides, you can't see anything else if you're uh, Mm. presenting or certainly at the time if you were presenting on Zoom or Teams. And, and that whole process, and you were on your own, you know, and sometimes you might have something in your ear, which was a producer saying, you're on in two minutes, Chris, but, but otherwise you're on your own. So with Live, what we tried to do was to build a platform for the, for the reality that people were presenting from home, but that we wanted to achieve something of a, of a higher level of quality than Zoom. So it takes that workflow of producing television for the internet and just simplifies it to a point where uh, it can be done cheaply and done at scale. And, and that's basically what it is. And last question, one piece of advice to uh, presenters or facilitators who are new to the virtual environment, what would it be? Take everything that you know from presenting uh, in the room and throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Take the opportunity to, to rethink very honestly how you come across in a virtual setting. There's loads of little bits that you can do, the camera, the lighting in your room, your audio, all of those will make you a better presenter and they cost you virtually nothing and and they take very little effort. You will just sound and look better if you have uh, given some thought to those things. But also, as I say, think about your audience 
and put yourself in their shoes. It's not hard. You're very often the audience. Put yourself in their shoes and think, am I really going to sit through all of that content? Mm. How do I make this something that is going to work with the reality that my audience is in rather than uh, an audience that's in the room? Love it. Chris Elnett, facilitator, CEO of Live. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. Lovely. Thank you so much, Alex. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.